Chapter Thirteen of Rose of the River by Kate Douglas Wiggin. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Rose of the River by Kate Douglas Wiggin. Chapter Thirteen, A Country Chevalier. It was early in August when Mrs. Wealthy Brooks announced her speedy return from Boston to Edgewood. "'It's just as well as Rose is coming back,' said Mr. Wiley to his wife. "'I never favored her going to Boston, where that rosy-posy Claude feller is. When he was down here, he was kept kind of tied up in a box stall. But there he's capering loose round the pasture.' "'I should think Rose would be ashamed to come back after the way she's carried on.' remarked Mrs. Wiley. But if she needed punishment, I guess she's got it being company-keeper to Wealthy Ann Brooks. Being a church member in good and regular standin', I suppose Wealthy Ann'll go to heaven. But I can only say that it would be a sight pleasanter place for a good many if she didn't. Rose has been foolish and flirty and wrong-headed, allowed her grandfather. But it won't do no good to treat her like a hardened criminal. Seems you did afore she went away. She ain't hardly got her wisdom teeth cut in love affairs. She ain't broke the laws of the state of Maine, nor any of the Ten Commandments. She ain't disgraced the family, and there's a chance for her to reform, seeing as how she ain't twenty year old yet. I was terrible wild and hot-headed myself afore you catched me and tamed me down. You ain't so tame now as I wish you was, Mrs. Wiley replied testily. If you could smoke a clay pipe, "'Twould calm your nerves, mother, and help you to get some philosophy into you. "'You need a little philosophy, terrible bad.' "'I need patience considerable more,' was Mrs. Wiley's withering retort. "'That's the way with folks,' said old Kennebec reflectively, as he went on peacefully puffing. "'If you try to induce em to take an interest in a brand-new virtue, they won't look at it. "'But they'll run down a side street.' and buy half a yard more of some terrible old shop-born trade of character that they've kept in stocks all their lives, and that everybody's sick to death of. There was a man in Gardner. But alas, the experiences of the Gardner man, though told in the same delightful fashion that had won Mrs. Wiley's heart many years before, now fell upon the empty air. In these years of old Kennebec's anecdotage, his pipe was his best listener and his truest confidant. Mr. Wiley's constant intercessions with his wife made Rose's homecoming somewhat easier, and the sight of her own room and belongings soothed her troubled spirit, but the days went on, and nothing happened to change the situation. She had lost a lover, that was all, and there were plenty more to choose from, or there always had been, but the only one she wanted was the one who made no sign. She used to think that she could twist Stephen around her little finger, that she had only to beckon to him and he would follow her to the ends of the earth. Now fear had entered her heart. She no longer felt sure, because she no longer felt worthy of him, and feeling both uncertainty and unworthiness, her lips were sealed, and she was rendered incapable of making any bid for forgiveness. So the little world of Pleasant River went on, to all outward seeming, as it had ever gone on. On one side of the stream a girl's heart was longing and pining and sickening, with hope deferred, and growing, too, with such astonishing rapidity that the very angels marvelled. And on the other, 
a man's whole vision of life and duty was widening and deepening under the fructifying influence of his sorrow. The corn waved high and green in front of the vacant riverside cottage, but Stephen sent no word or message to Rose. He had seen her once, but only from a distance. She seemed paler and thinner, he thought, the result, probably, of her metropolitan gaieties. He heard no rumour of any engagement, and he wondered if it were possible that her love for Claude Merrill had not, after all, been returned in kind. This seemed a wild impossibility. His mind refused to entertain the supposition that any man on earth could resist falling in love with Rose, or having fallen in, that he could ever contrive to climb out. So he worked on at his farm harder than ever, and grew soberer and more careworn daily. Rufus had never seemed so near and dear to him as in these weeks, when he had lived under the shadow of threatened blindness. The burning of the barn and the strain upon their slender property brought the brothers together shoulder to shoulder. "'If you lose your girl, Steve,' said the boy, "'and I lose my eyesight, and we both live on, why, it will be us two against the world, for a spell.' The to-let sign on the little house was an arrant piece of hypocrisy. Nothing but the direst extremity could have caused him to allow an alien step on that sacred threshold. The ploughing up of the flower-beds and planting of the corn had served a double purpose. It showed the too curious public the finality of his break with Rose, and her absolute freedom. It also prevented them from suspecting that he still entered the place. His visits were not many, but he could not bear to let the dust settle on the furniture that he and Rose had chosen together and whenever he locked the door and went back to the river-farm, he thought of a verse in the Bible. Therefore the Lord God sent him forth from the Garden of Eden, to till the ground from whence he was taken. It was now Friday of the last week in August. The river was full of logs, thousands upon thousands of them covering the surface of the water from the bridge almost up to the Briar neighbourhood. The Edgewood Drive was late, owing to a long drought and low water, but it was to begin on the following Monday, and Lige Dennett and his underboss were looking over the situation and planning the campaign. As they leaned over the bridge-rail, they saw Mr. Wiley driving down the river-road. When he caught sight of them he hitched the old white horse at the corner and walked toward them, filling his pipe the while in his usual leisurely manner. "'We're not busy this forenoon,' said Lige Dennett. "'Suppose we stand right here and let old Kennebec have a say out for once. We've never heard the end of one of his stories.' and he's been talking for twenty years all right rejoined his companion with a broad grin at the idea i'm willing of you are but who's gonna tell our families the reason we've deserted em i bet ya we shan't budge till the crack o doom the road commissioner'll come along once a year and mend the bridge under our feet but old kennebec'll talk straight on till the day o judgment Mr. Wiley had one of the most enjoyable mornings of his life, and felt that after half a century of neglect his powers were at last appreciated by his fellow-citizens. He proposed numerous strategic movements to be made upon the logs, whereby they would move more swiftly than usual. He described several successful drives on the Kennebec, when the logs had melted down the river almost by magic, owing to his generalship, and he paid a tribute in passing to the docility of the boss who on that occasion had never moved a single log without asking his advice. From this topic he proceeded genially to narrate the life-histories of the boss, the under-boss, and several Indians belonging to the crew. 
histories in which he himself played a gallant and conspicuous part. The conversation then drifted naturally to the exploits of river-drivers in general, and Mr. Wiley narrated the sorts of feats in log-riding, pick-pole-throwing, and the shooting of rapids that he had done in his youth. These stories were such as had been seldom heard by the ear of man, and as they passed into circulation instantaneously, we are probably enjoying some of them to this day. They were still being told when a Cranberry child appeared on the bridge, bearing a note for the old man. Upon reading it he moved off rapidly in the direction of the store, ejaculating, "'Bless my soul! I clean forgot that saleratus, and mother sitting at the kitchen table with a bowl in her lap, waiting for it. Got so interested in your listening, I never thought of the time.'" The connubial discussion that followed this breach of discipline began on the arrival of the saleratus, and lasted through supper, and Rose went to bed almost immediately afterward for very dullness and apathy. Her life stretched out before her in the most aimless and monotonous fashion. She saw nothing but heartache in the future, and that she richly deserved it made it none the easier to bear. Feeling feverish and sleepless, she slipped on her grey shaker cloak and stole quietly downstairs for a breath of air. Her grandfather and grandmother were talking on the piazza, and good humour seemed to have been restored. "'I was over to the tavern to-night,' she heard him say as he sat down at a little distance. "'I was over to the tavern to-night and a feller from Gorham got talkin' and a-braggin' about what a stock of goods they kept in the store over there. And, says I, I bet ye dollars to doughnuts that there hain't a darn thing you can ask for over at Bill Pike's store at Pleasant River that he can't go down the cellar, or up attic, or out in the barn chamber and get for ye. Well, sir, he took me up, and I borrowed the money of Joe Dennett, who held the stakes, and we went right over to Bill Pike's with the boys all following on behind. And the Gorham man never let on what he was going to ask for till the whole crowd of us got inside the store. Then says he, as plied as basket old chips, Mr. Pike, I'd like to buy a pulpit if you can oblige me with one. Bill scratched his head and I held my breath. Then says he, Pears to me I'd ought to have a pulpit or two, if I can just remember where I keep em. I don't never calculate to be out of pulpits, but I'm so plagued for room I can't keep em in here with the groceries. Jim, that's his new store boy, you just take a lantern and run out in the far corner of the shed, at the end of the hickory woodpile, and see how many pulpits we've got in stock. Well, Jim run out, and when he come back he says, We got two, Mr. Pike. Shall I bring one of them in? At that the boys all burst out laughing and hollering and taunting the Gorham man, and he paid up with good will, I tell ye. I don't approve of bettin', said Mrs. Wiley grimly, but I'll try to sanctify the money by using it for a new wash-boiler. The fact is, explained old Kennebec, somewhat confused, that the boys made me spend every cent of it then and there. Rose heard her grandmother's caustic reply, and then paid no further attention until her keen ear caught the sound of Stephen's name. It was a part of her unhappiness that since her broken engagement no one would ever allude to him, and she longed to hear him mentioned, so that perchance she could get some inkling of his movements. "'I met Stephen to-night for the first time in a week,' said Mr. Wiley. "'He kind of keeps out of my way lately. 
He's going to drive his span into Portland tomorrow morning and bring Rufus home from the hospital Sunday afternoon. The doctors think they've made a success of their job, but Rufus has got to be bandaged up a spell longer. Stephen is going to join the drive Monday morning at the bridge here, so I'll get the latest news of the boy. Land, I'll be terrible glad if he gets out with his eyesight, if it's only for Steve's sake. He's a terrible good feller, Steve is. He said something tonight that made me set more store by him than ever. I told you I hadn't heard an unkind word again Rose since she came home from Boston, and no more I have till this evening. There was two or three fellers talking in the post office, and they didn't suspicion I was setting on the steps outside the screen door. That Jim Jenkins, that Rose so everlastingly snubbed at the tavern dance, spoke up and says he, This time last year, Rose Wiley could have had the choice of any man on the river, and now I bet you she can't get nary a one. Steve was there, just going out the door, with some bags of coffee and sugar under his arm. I guess you're mistaken about that, he says, speaking of just like lightning. So long as Stephen Waterman's alive, Rose Wiley can have him, for one, and that everybody's welcome to know. He spoke right out, loud and plain, just as if he was reading the Declaration of Independence. I expected the boys would everlastingly poke fun at him, but they never said a word. I guess his eyes flashed, for he come out of the screen door, slamming it after him, and stalked by me as if he was too worked up to notice anything or anybody. I didn't foller him, for his long legs get over the ground too fast for me, but thinks I, maybe I'll have some use for my lemonade set after all. I hope to the land you will, responded Mrs. Wiley, for I'm about sick of moving it round when I sweep under my bed, and I shall be glad if Rose and Stephen do make it up, for wealthy Ann Brooks's gossip is too much for a Christian woman to stand. End of chapter 13